this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you now for these few moments. And Lord, as we think about these words, which are not easy, Lord, none of us likes to think about the promise of being reviled and persecuted. So, Father, uh, would we be able to set aside what we want and what we desire and what we think ought to be, and would we instead, as your people, bow the knee to your word and understand in your economy the goodness of what is promised here this morning? We pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus has made plain what it means to follow him, we've recognized that the Beatitudes are going to put us horribly out of step with our culture. Now, you would think that meekness... Being poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and showing mercy are all things that would be celebrated in a society. And even if someone said, thanks, not really for me, but you do you, nonetheless, we would hope that such an individual could see the value of those who sought to pursue the kinds of virtues that Jesus is teaching us. Well, as the Beatitudes come to an end, Jesus tells us a rather shocking truth. He tells us that when we make these virtues known, we will be reviled, we will be persecuted, not welcomed and celebrated, but reviled and persecuted. Well, for those of us who grew up in church, or those of us who remember the days in which it was openly said that America was a Christian nation, we need to stop for just a moment and let Jesus' words really sink in. Friends, when we follow the Jesus way, we will be reviled. We will be persecuted. The great English pastor J.C. Ryle put it this way, being reviled and persecuted is another one of God's promises to his people, and God always keeps his promises. Let me read that again. Being reviled and persecuted is another one of God's promises to his people, and God always keeps his promises. Well, that prompts a fairly obvious question. Why? Why does following Jesus necessarily result in reviling and persecution? I mean, what's going on that we ought to expect such treatment as servants of the one true king? But there's even more. Of course there is, you tell yourself. This is Jesus, and with Jesus there's always more. 
Jesus tells us not just that we're going to be reviled and persecuted, but he calls us to receive that reviling and that persecution with joy and gladness. You're going to be reviled. You're going to be persecuted. Be joyful and be glad. Jesus gives a seemingly impossible task on top of the already hard word that he speaks to his people this morning. Well, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see there a big idea for our time in this text. And the big idea is this. The righteous have always been persecuted and should receive that inevitability with joy and gladness. The righteous have always been persecuted and should receive that inevitability with joy and gladness. And so this morning, there are two questions we want to answer. The first one is why, and the second one is how. Why have the righteous always been persecuted? And how in the world are we supposed to receive that inevitability with joy and gladness? Three points we would make this morning, then the first one is this. It's always been this way. It's always been this way. Look at the very end of uh, this particular beatitude, and there are two that go together. For Jesus speaks of being persecuted, and in fact, he tells us twice. He adds to persecution for righteousness sake, the idea that we're going to be reviled, and it's going to be on his account. And then in verse 12 at the very end, as he's telling us this seemingly impossible thing to rejoice and be glad, he lets us know that when that's happening, when you're being reviled and persecuted, please know you're in good company. Because that's exactly what happened to the prophets. And so Jesus ties the suffering of his people to the suffering of God's faithful servants that preceded this particular sermon. He ties our suffering for the sake of his name to the prophets. Now, let's think for just a minute about the prophets. Let's think about what they went through. You have Elijah, who after he triumphs against the prophets of Baal, loses his nerve, goes off into the wilderness because Jezebel has promised that she is going to kill him. You have Daniel, who is given a death sentence at least twice that we know of in the book of Daniel. Why? Because he won't bow the knee, because uh, he refuses to stop praying to God. You have the prophet Isaiah, who when he's given his commission, is told by God, listen, you're going to preach and they're not going to hear you. And in fact, I'm making sure that they don't hear you. Because if they understand, they might turn. And if they turn, I'd have to forgive them. And it's not happening. So Isaiah, good luck. Here's your commission. By the way, it's not going to work. Or how about the prophet Jeremiah, who we call the weeping prophet, who at one point in his ministry was lowered down into a septic tank and left there to die. Now, it isn't just the prophets that have suffered for the sake of their of faithfulness to the Lord. We can go even further back than that. In fact, we can go back to the very beginning. 
we can go back to the passage that Ella read for us in Genesis chapter 4. What exactly did Abel do wrong? What exactly did Abel do or say or think that would warrant his brother killing him? Now, if you're sitting there shrugging, going, well, pastor, I don't, I don't think there was anything. You're absolutely right. See, the Bible tells us from Genesis 3 on that there's a war between the righteous offspring of the woman and those who are the offspring of the serpent. And as we make our way through the book of Genesis, we see that there's this, there's this uh, constant conflict between the descendants of Cain and those who are the godly descendants of Seth. So the world has always been set up with this kind of conflict built in. And so I think a great many of us fail to recognize, or maybe we know it, but we forget, or sometimes we know it, but we don't want to know it. The Christian life is necessarily one of conflict. The Apostle Paul calls us as Christians in the letter to Ephesians to put on our armor because we are engaged in a spiritual conflict. It's spiritual warfare. So when Jesus says, it's like the prophets who were before you, he's reminding us of this great truth that there have always been those who have been opposed to God and to his people. If you watched the state swim meet yesterday, and by the way, thank you for those of you who did and for the balloons and for the cards. And uh, uh, we might need to have you cheer in just a minute to wake Nathaniel up. Uh, he's, he's struggling a bit this morning. Uh, you, you, if you were watching, you noticed one of the really great storylines about the state swim meet yesterday was uh, for the first time in 15 years, Omaha Creighton Prep did not win the state title in swimming. Now, I'm biased. We lost a state championship to Creighton Prep my junior year in high school. I'm not going to say I hate them. I'm just going to say I'm not a fan. So when all of the other teams broke into the chair before the 4x100 relay chanting, let's go Southwest, I was in my living room doing the same chant. And it wasn't that the other swimmers don't like prep guys or there's some kind of personal animosity. No, the world in Omaha is pretty simple. If you grew up playing high school sports in Omaha, you're not a fan. <laughs> don't take my word for it, though. Ask the Geiger girls. See, Jesus is reminding us that the world hates God's people because the world hates God. So don't be surprised when they revile you, when they persecute you. It's like we're all walking around wearing Creighton Prep swag, which is an odious thought. They hate us simply because of who's team we're on. They hate us because of who we represent. They hate us because of whose we are. So when Jesus makes the promise that we will be persecuted for righteousness sake, that others will revile us and persecute us, he's simply reminding us that this age-old struggle continues. 
And the world will hate God's people fundamentally because the world hates God. Secondly, then, we get some important qualifiers. We get some important qualifiers. One of the things that we're pretty good at as Christians is to think that anytime we're having a rough go of it, we're necessarily being persecuted or we're necessarily uh, facing vitriol or hatred because of who we are in Jesus. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes that's true just because we're sinners. And sometimes it's true because we're not very pleasant. And sometimes it's true, honestly, just because we're sort of idiots and we do things that make people not like us. And in that way, we're not different from anybody else. It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it, if the minute that uh, you are born again, the minute the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that we all got these personality transplants and suddenly we're really likable and we never say the wrong thing and we don't rub people the wrong way and we're never lazy, we're never hateful. But friends, all those things are true. And so Jesus gives us three really important qualifiers as we think about being reviled and as we think about being persecuted. He reminds us that we need to be persecuted for righteousness sake. Sometimes people call us out. Sometimes a watching world calls us out because our behavior is unrighteous or our words and our actions are unrighteous. I have a friend who makes his living as a historian. He's done a lot of work related to race, particularly in Puritan New England. And here recently, uh, he's done a lot of work within the civil rights movement. And one of the things that he's wrestling with and struggling with, and I find myself agreeing with him, is uh, during the civil rights movement in the South, churches that held the line admirably so when it came to questions of the authority of the Bible, and the truthfulness of Scripture, the necessity of the new birth, the reality of Jesus and the virgin birth, those same churches were the ones that completely missed the mark when it came to the civil rights question. To call that out is not to persecute or revile those churches for righteousness' sake. It's to point out the fact that they were human and they were wrong, and in that instance, lamentably so. He says also that when they accuse you falsely. Again, friends, it would be great, wouldn't it, if the minute we become a Christian, it meant we never erred, it meant that we never sinned, It meant that we never forgot things or that we never misunderstood things or that we never miscommunicated or that we never somehow got the wrong end of the stick. If that's you this morning, please raise your hand. But that's not us. In fact, we often find that growing in grace means that I'm more aware of the ways in which I sin. I'm more of the ways in which I err. And I'm more ready to repent and to seek forgiveness from others than I would have necessarily been. But if someone calls us out for our own sin, that doesn't mean that we're being persecuted. It's an important qualifier when he says 
that they are speaking against you falsely. They're uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely. No, sometimes the truth is we are all too human. And people say things about us that sadly are true. When that happens, it's not that we're being reviled and persecuted. No, someone's simply telling the sad truth about who we are. The last important qualifier that Jesus tells us is that this kind of persecution and this kind of speaking against us is on his account. And this is where I think we really need to be wise and we need to be thoughtful because we live in a moment in which it's very easy to confuse cultural conservatism with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's easy to confuse political conservatism with fidelity to Jesus' name. We've talked about this, and many of you know, we've, we've had some, uh, some interesting messages left on the door of our church. Someone has come along and they've left messages for, for, uh, for Senator Sass, uh, letting us know that they're not particular fans of his. Well, that's not this church uh, being reviled or persecuted for Jesus' sake. That's someone taking exception with the political position of a member of our congregation. It was a political statement, not a statement about the gospel. It was a statement about politics. And friends, at, at no other time has the need been greater for us as, a, as the people of God to stand up and go, politics and the gospel are not one and the same. You can be a Christian and not have voted for one particular party or another. In fact, we could have great differences across the spectrum in terms of who we voted for. We could have a spirited conversation about that. But I'm not going to sit here and go, no, you know what? You're not a Christian if you didn't vote this particular way or if you didn't vote for this particular party. Listen, the gospel and the Republican Party are not one and the same. The saving message of Jesus Christ and the Democratic Party are not one and the same. They're not. So let's understand when Jesus says you're blessed when you're reviled and persecuted for righteousness sake and it's falsely and it's on my account. That's not about your conservatism or my conservatism. It's not about your progressivism or my progressivism. It's about the gospel. And being culturally or ideologically or politically conservative or progressive is not the gospel. It's not. Now, the gospel will impact how we think about those things. But friends, we've got to stop making it the gospel. I think there's a great many of us who would be well served to turn Fox News off. Turn CNN off. Ben and I have this conversation often. We don't want to be known as the congregation where he goes to church. We want to be known as a congregation uh, that loves God and loves our neighbor. Right? That's, that's what we want to be about. I, 
Um, and honestly, and he, he and I have had this conversation too, it's a pain in the butt that he goes to church here. It really is. You have no idea the phone calls we get. I won't play them for you because they are, they are hateful and they are mean-spirited and they are many of them idiotic. And you know what? They have nothing to do with the gospel. I'm not even doing gospel work when I'm fielding these ridiculous phone calls. I'm doing community service. It's like I'm on probation or something. I don't it's horrible. Let's keep those qualifiers in mind as we think about what it means to be reviled and we think about what it means to be persecuted. Thirdly and finally, how can we rejoice and be glad? How can we rejoice and be glad? Hey, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be reviled. This wonderful life-giving message, this thing that changes the way you view the entire world. People are going to hate you for it. So how can we rejoice and be glad? Four reasons. By the way, these aren't listed in your bulletin, but here they are. First, this kind of reviling and persecution identifies us with Jesus. It identifies us with Jesus. One of the questions that we're going to ask at some point in our Christian life is, uh, and, and these two things kind of go together, uh, uh, do I really belong to Jesus? And how do I know that I'm really and truly saved? Well, turn if you would, keep your finger in Matthew 5, but turn over in the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And I want us to see what Peter does as he talks about suffering and persecution and how he ties that to our identity with the Lord Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Here's what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So let's stop right there, right? Hey, remember we've said uh, these trials and this persecution, it's a promise of God. And yet every time they show up, what do we do? We're like, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? I think you've forgotten what's up. And Peter reminds us helpfully, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Instead, he tells us the same thing. Rejoice. Why? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here's what Peter is saying. If you're suffering for the sake of Jesus and the gospel now, if you're enduring that fiery trial now, guess what that means when Jesus returns? It means you have your union card in your pocket. You're good to go. You are fully identified with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So this kind of reviling and persecution identifies us with Jesus in a way that nothing else does. And so we can rejoice. We can be glad, not because we're gluttons for punishment, 
but because we understand that reviling and persecution for righteousness sake on the account of Jesus in the gospel identifies us with, with him in a way that nothing else can. Here's the second thing it does. We can rejoice and be glad because this kind of reviling and persecution gives us an assurance of our salvation. It gives us an assurance of our salvation. John chapter 15 in the upper room discourse. Jesus knows he's going to his death. He's speaking with his disciples. This is his farewell address to them. He says this to them in verses 18 and 19 of John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if you're being persecuted for the sake of Jesus in the gospel, if you're being reviled because of Jesus, if you're being reviled on Jesus' account, Jesus says, listen, that's the world hating you because the world hates me. So if you're wondering, hey, do I really belong to Jesus? Well, ask yourself, have ever faced this kind of reviling? Have ever faced this kind of persecution? Jesus chose us out of the world. And because that's true, the world hates us. And so reviling and persecution, in a strange way, but in a very powerful way, gives us an assurance of our salvation. Third thing, the third reason we can rejoice and be glad is that it helps us grow in grace. It helps us grow in grace. If you meet someone who's, generally speaking, just kind of sweet-tempered and they have a maturity in the gospel and they don't get particularly worked up about stuff and they just, they can just kind of roll with it and, and they have a, there's a depth and a kind of texture and a richness to their relationship with the Lord that you go, hey, I, I want some of that. Please know it's probably because they've dealt with what Jesus is talking about. They've been reviled. They've been persecuted. Listen to what James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, this kind of persecution is one of the things that God uses to grow us in grace. It's one of the things he uses to make us look more like the Lord Jesus. And as awful as it is, it produces this beautiful fruit in which James says, it will, when it has its full effect, we are perfect and complete. We lack in nothing. So here's the fourth and final reason that we can rejoice. We can rejoice in the face of reviling and persecution because we have a great reward. We have a great reward. There's a wonderful uh, book. I hope you have it in your home. Uh, I actually got exposed to it because uh, there was a, a comic book author who actually did a comic version of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And, you know, I mean, they were all gory and really, and if you're a 10-year-old boy, awesome. 
because people are getting beheaded and burned and it's great. And, you know, you just dig that. Well, I remember the story of John Bradford, one of the Marian martyrs in London, who was burned at the stake July 1st, 1555. He turned to one of his fellow Christians and he said this to them, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. It's interesting, isn't it? When you read the book of Revelation, the folks who have the most near, who have the nearest access to the throne of the Lord are those who were martyred for the cause of Jesus in the gospel. Facing reviling and persecution, we can rejoice and be glad because we know that we have a great reward. In a few moments, we're going to come together to the Lord's table. And I love what the table proclaims to us. And I love the fact that the table is not about my love for Jesus. I love that the table is fundamentally not a statement that I'm making. Rather, it's a statement that the Lord is making to us. Fundamentally, we know that the most basic thing the table says is, I'm your God and you're my people. But the table also tells us that suffering is the way of Jesus. The table tells us that persecution is the way of Jesus. And when we think about the scoffing that Jesus endured in his passion, we know that reviling is the way of Jesus. And we understand that in God's redemptive economy, in the way that God planned to bring about his grand plan of redemption, reviling and persecution and suffering, they're all redemptive. They're not empty. They're not meaningless. They're not an accident. No, friends, those are the means by which God brings his redemption into the world. And so we are blessed and we can rejoice and we can be glad. For so they persecuted all of God's people, Jesus included, who were before us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Lord, first, let we, we just we need to stop and say, first of all, um, forgive us because we really like to confuse uh, the, the source of the persecution and reviling. Uh, Father, forgive us for thinking that somehow um, our, our philosophical views or our cultural views or our political views are somehow the gospel. They're not. And Father, we pray that uh, the way in which we view the world through all of those lenses would, would take a knee to the gospel. That the gospel would be the driving and defining thing about us, not party politics, not a particular kind of conservatism or progressivism, be that intellectual or political or, or of any kind. So Lord, forgive us. We're, we're very good at substituting things in for the gospel. 
Uh, Lord, at the same time, thank you. Thank you that we can rejoice and be glad. Thank you that we can be blessed when suffering and persecution comes our way. Thank you for the way it identifies with the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the kind of fruit it bears in our life. Thank you for the assurance it gives of our salvation. And thank you, Father, at the end of the day, we know that we have this great reward that the Lord Jesus has purchased for us. May we keep those things in mind. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.